This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's October 19th, and I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis. Today, I've got a special guest in studio with me. Representing Fool Funds is Charlie Travers, who is a portfolio manager for the Independence Fund as well as the Great America Fund. Charlie, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Really excited to be here. So, for our listeners who might not be familiar with Fool Funds, can you give some background on what you and your team do? Right. Uh, so we have three mutual funds. One is a global all cap, you know, go anywhere fund. That's the independence fund that you mentioned. Uh, our second fund is the Great America Fund, which is a domestic small and mid cap fund. And then we have a third fund called Epic Voyage, which is completely international. Uh, so consistent with Motley Fool philosophy, we are long term buy and hold investors. We just want to find uh, great businesses, uh, you know, that we really like and admire and then hold on to them for the long term. Great. One of the things that got me really interested in the different funds was the international exposure uh, of them. So the Independence Fund is roughly 50% non-US investments. Is that right? Yes, that's yes, right. So, what exactly makes something a non-US investment? Uh, for us, uh, it is a company that is domiciled outside of the United States. Uh, by prospectus, we'll have at least 50% of our holdings uh, be US companies. And then after that, we can go uh, pretty much wherever we want. It's a lot of fun. So, it doesn't necessarily matter what exchange they're trading on or where their revenue is actually generated. It's about where headquarters is? Yeah, just keep it simple that way. Interesting. Okay. So, when you're thinking about building a portfolio as as an individual investor, how important is international exposure? Uh, you know, obviously, we're a little bit biased about that. Um, and it's less about the uh, mathematics of your asset allocation. Uh, and for us, it's more that uh, we don't just want to be looking in our own backyard. We think there's great businesses everywhere around the world. Uh, and it's certainly worth the time and effort to go find them. I mean, we have a lot of great companies here in America, but there's also a lot more out there as well. Does looking outside of your own backyard present any sort of unique challenges? Uh, I think in the United States, we are spoiled by a lot of things. We are spoiled by the sheer number of companies that are public and available to pick from. And we're spoiled by the transparency and disclosure. We get quarterly earnings reports. Almost every company is going to do a conference call to talk about the results. Uh, You can, in a lot of cases, get them up on the phone if you felt like it. Uh, When you're investing in overseas, it's an entirely different animal. A lot of companies report twice a year. A lot of them do not do conference calls unless they're big multinationals. Uh, The uh, communications on their website may or may not be in English. If it's not in English, that's very, very difficult. Uh, And then uh, the corporate governance is not the same. We take it for granted here that uh, companies have independent board of directors that oversee what management is doing and that shareholders have a voice in changing things if so needed. Uh, That's usually not the case overseas. Uh, You find a lot of board of directors that are not independent by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, You will see um, companies where the founding family, it's essentially like a public family-run business where they have a huge ownership stake and basically what they say goes. So, you're either on board or you're not. 
Uh, and then in some cases, you're investing alongside the government, which also has a stake in the business. So there's a lot of uh, nuances and things you have to pay attention to. Uh, you know, management quality and making sure they're acting in the interest of all shareholders is important for us, regardless of where a company is. But it's we're especially mindful of it overseas. That's really interesting. Is currency another risk to add to that equation? Yeah, I'd put currency as number two on our risks. Uh, we invest uh, directly overseas in a lot of cases, so we want to own the companies on their local market. Uh, we think there's benefits of currency diversification, uh, but that's a double-edged sword. Uh, we have no ability to claim which direction currencies are going to move. So sometimes, uh, you know, take uh, Brazil, for example, uh, in recent history, when that currency moves against you, you could be doing great in the local market. And then when the results are translated to dollars for us for our own performance reporting, it could be pretty painful. That's interesting. So, yeah. just to clarify what you mean by that, um, so GlaxoSmithKline trades on the London Stock Exchange as right. well as uh, over here, I think, on the New York Stock Exchange. Yes. So, you guys would pick the London version to buy shares in? Uh, that That's a case-by-case -case basis. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, um, but in, in certain but cases- But that is what you meant by that? Yes, yes. We could uh, buy, so buy stocks in London and Tokyo, wherever, but then you're owning them in British pounds or yen, uh, and your results are not just dependent on how well the business is doing and the price you paid for the stock, but what the currencies are doing as well. Uh, and that's something we have no control over. Sometimes it's frustrating. Uh, sometimes it works to our advantage. Right, and I assume that affects the dividend payment as well. Right, right, right. So. Uh, uh, there were years like Novartis, one of the big pharmaceutical companies, Swiss business pays their dividend in Swiss francs. There was like a five-year run where American investors who owned it in francs were just doing so great because uh, the Swiss franc was so strong and they're getting those dividend payments in a strong currency. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that there's not a specific mathematical way of thinking about how you should allocate your portfolio towards international investments. Is there a range of you know a percentage target that you would say individual investors should look towards when they're trying to think about balancing between their domestic country and abroad investments? I think that gets to a um, broader question about somebody's personal circumstances, their own risk tolerances, uh, what their objectives are for their portfolio. Uh, we're not financial planners, so you know that kind of advice is really not something we give out on an individual basis. Right. So uh, it really you, is up to you. Yeah. I mean, but within our fund, we are roughly fifty-fifty. Interesting. Do you think that that would change if you were ex-US? So, for example, um, I think about 80% of our, our podcast listeners are based in the United States. And if I had to guess, I would assume that probably the majority of other portfolios are based in the US. Right. Once you are not a US resident anymore, how does that change? Well, you know, so uh, it changes quite dramatically because most other countries around the world have much smaller stock markets than we do here. I mean, you're, you can be talking uh, hundreds of companies instead of 10,000, and then typically those companies are concentrated in whatever industries happen to be dominant in that country. So maybe it's a natural resource mining heavy country, or like in the UK, they're very heavy with uh, financials and industrials. Uh, so you may be are not able to get the breadth of industry exposure that Americans take for granted. And if you want that in your portfolio, you have to be uh, looking in uh, bigger waters, I think. So, at that point, it's extra important to be actively looking abroad. Yeah, I would think so. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. 32% of respondents in a TD Bank poll reported that their home purchase was very to extremely stressful. 
Rocket Mortgage wants to ease that burden by bringing the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and your pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. And even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this from your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. Since this is the healthcare show, we want to talk a little bit about some specific healthcare holdings in the full funds portfolios and what exactly drew you to those companies. So, since we were just talking about international stocks, let's start first with a pick from the Independence Fund. And this is indeed one of the largest holdings in the fund of healthcare. And this is NMC Health. Uh, can you start off with a basic description of what they do? Right. Uh, so, NMC Health is a hospital and physician clinic operator in the United Arab Emirates. Um, and so, when we evaluate our companies as a team, we talk about companies across four pillars. It'd be management quality, uh, their competitive advantage, the business economics, and then is the business going to get stronger over the next 10 years? Uh, so I had the opportunity to spend a week out in Dubai looking at companies in the Middle East, uh, and NMC Health was one of the businesses I saw. So I got to tour, uh, tour their facilities and one that was under construction, and I found uh, what they were doing with their hospitals to be pretty remarkable. So the backdrop in the UAE it's a wealthy country with wealthy country healthcare problems. So that means high incidence of cardiovascular disease, a lot of obesity, diabetes, uh, and things of that nature. And uh, alongside that, with the rising incidence, I mean, just the kind of diseases you see in the United States was a country that had massively underinvested in its infrastructure to the point where they were sending people overseas, uh, mostly into Europe, to get treatment because they just didn't have the facilities at home. Um, so they had a lot of government-owned hospitals, and what they did uh, was encourage private sector. And one of those companies was NMC Health to come in and start building hospitals. NMC started there in the 1970s, but has really accelerated their uh, modern buildings uh, to treat the population there. Uh, so we saw their maternity hospital. I mean, the maternity wards there, it's a growing population, are just bursting at the seams. So they built a modern state-of-the-art facility with 100 beds. It's a gorgeous building. I mean, anyone here would be happy to be in there. Uh, and then they built another specialty hospital that can do things like oncology, general surgery. They have a NICU for little kids. Um, and so they're just able to meet the needs of a population that dramatically needs better health care and to do it with Western high-class standards. So then what that has also enabled is medical tourism to come to a place uh, that just has all these Western doctors, just premier facilities. Uh, people can come in there, get treated, take a nice vacation in Dubai, and then be on their way. Um, but you know, so as far as a competitive advantage, there's only a couple hospitals that do this. You don't just, I mean, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build one. You need the blessing of the government. So once they're in and up and running, it's a really nice business. And over there, uh, you know, the payment system makes it so hospitals are much more profitable in that kind of market than they are here in the U.S. Why do you say that? Uh, so 
uh, it's a combination of their government healthcare plan and then the people who are there as employees. It's a highly expat uh, society where people have their own private insurance. And so uh, the hospitals are able to charge a price where they get a better margin on the services they're providing. So typically in the U.S., you do see pretty low margins for hospital right. operators. Is I guess that's not as much of an issue no, over there. No, not at all. No, I mean because everybody is covered with insurance, so they're not having to treat anybody who walks in the door regardless of ability to pay, which I think we should do here. I mean, it's the right thing to do. But it um, gets expensive. It gets expensive. <laughs> right. Um, another trend that we see here is consolidation in the hospital industry mm-hmm. um, and medical providers in general, probably because they're so low margin. And you know, it's when it really comes push comes to shove, you're going to operate better if you have that bigger network and you have a little bit more of a smooth ride between the different bumps that a small provider might see. Is that something that you also see over when you're you're looking uh, with NMC, where they are trying to get bigger and scale up and try to improve their their numbers that way? Right. So they have uh, the two big crown jewel hospitals I talked about, but then they have a feeder system of all these doctors' offices and smaller forty bed hospitals that are you know spread like a spider web throughout the country. People go to those as their first call when they get sick. And then if they need the high-end facilities, they get funneled into these like centralized, you know, big hospitals with all the bells and whistles. Uh, And so they have a small network of inexpensive locations and doctors to bring people in the door. And then when they find out they need like legit services because they're really sick, then they get up, you know, they get pushed up the funnel, so to speak. And it's all within the same network. That's right. That's great. Um, So uh, that is uh, the pick that we wanted to talk about internationally, let's go back to the States for a pick from the Great America portfolio, Align Technologies. What what do they do? Uh, Align Technologies is the maker of the Invisalign tooth alignment system. So they are the alternative to metal braces. Uh, Their core market historically has been adults who decided at a point in their life that their teeth were maybe not as straight as they would like, and then they used Invisalign. instead of deciding to use metal braces. Um, there's a couple reasons behind that. Um, they're more comfortable to wear. There's no restrictions on the type of food you can eat. You can take them out a little bit at night if you felt like it. Uh, and you know they're basically invisible, and for some people that's a, a concern. Um, Invisalign is far and away the market share leader there, you know, speaking of, you know, we prefer companies with strong competitive advantages. Uh, they get it on two fronts. They have to do a lot of R&D. I mean, they've been doing this for 15 years to build products that actually work because the dentist won't use them if they don't. Uh, and then there's regulatory approvals that, you know, any new company who wants to do this would have to do that as well. So they've paired those barriers to entry along with creating a brand around their product. I mean, some of the best companies in the world got there because they have a brand that, you know, consumers love and they've just built that out. So, you know, they've got multiple angles around their competitive advantage that uh, we really find admirable. Yeah, this really does remind me of like a Kleenex or a Band-Aid sort of situation where you think clear dentistry, orthodontic equipment, I don't even know how to say it in a generic right. <laughs> way, and you think Invisalign. Right. You know, that is the, the brand with the sticking power. And of course, they've got patents out to Wazoo right. covering them, I'm sure, in case oh, yeah. a competitor even did want to come out. Um, one thing that stood out to me as a potential problem for this business would be insurance coverage. Is that an, an issue to look out for, and how have they met that challenge? Right. So, 
I'll step back for a little bit. When I first got started following healthcare like 15 years ago, all you had to worry about was whether or not the FDA was going to approve your product, and then you could basically name your price. The world has changed dramatically, um, not just, I mean, for drugs and medical devices where Medicare and the insurers are pushing hard on price. Uh, we're, we're moving to a world of value-based pricing. Um, so when you look at a company like Invisalign, it's generally not covered by an insurance plan. It's usually about a $5,000 procedure that someone pays for out of pocket. There's a pro and a con to that, but the pro means they set their own pricing and if somebody agrees to pay it, they, they get it. They're not worried about an insurance company coming to them next year and saying, you have to lower your prices by 10% or we're not gonna cover you. I mean, there's so many of those issues like that affecting uh, lab tests, diagnostic tests, medical devices where Medicare and the insurers are pushing them on price and they have no pricing power. A company like Invisalign has pricing power, but on the flip side, they have to worry about whether or not people can actually afford it. Right. And it seems like even though it is an elective procedure, people are electing to do it. And their market share is very strong relative to any sort of competitors because they're practically non existent. Right. But in the grand scheme of people who have malocclusion, which I learned is how you say <laughs> crooked teeth right. in fancy medical right. terms, they're just kind of scratching the tip of that, that population. Right. And, and so, as I mentioned, their core market historically has been adults because, you know, if you're a mom or dad and it's a $5,000 procedure, you might do it for yourself. Uh, for your 15 year old who might lose the aligners or not use them properly and then the treatment doesn't work, that was a higher bar yeah. to get through. Uh, so, they're just starting uh, through education programs to tell parents, like, look, we've tried this in teens. If you tell them the importance of doing it responsibly, they will actually do that. And so they're starting to get a little more traction in that market, which is a far bigger market than adults. Another element that I can see coming into play here is the aesthetics of it. When you're an adult, you don't want to get braces because you look around and right. nobody else has braces. But when you're a kid, everybody's got braces. You know, you're right. comparing what band color you want next with your best friend right. because that, that's just how it goes when you're mm -hmm. in middle school. And I can see it being a little bit more difficult to convince parents that it's worth the added expense to get these nice looking clear ones when the kid might not really care. Right, right. But I can also see over time that becoming a little bit trendier to, to go towards this clear, better looking feel. And they are more comfortable and you don't have to uh, alter what you're eating as well. So I think there's two advantages there uh, regardless of the person's age. Also important to remember. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for being here on the show with me today. This has been fun. It was a lot of fun. If you want to read more from Charlie Travers, you can go to foolfunds.com and sign up for the Declarations newsletter, which is free and it comes monthly from the Full Funds team. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Charlie Travers, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening and Fool on.